Amen. That's our great hope, isn't it? That, that our sins, though they be many, His grace is greater. Take your Bibles and turn along with me one last time, at least for now, to the book of 1 Peter. First Peter chapter 5. This morning we come to the end of our study of the book of First Peter, in which we have identified the theme of the book as gospel hope for troubled times. Gospel hope for troubled times. Peter is sought to encourage and equip these believers scattered throughout Asia Minor in the midst of a rising level of Christian persecution. Things were getting harder. It was a hard time to be a Christian, and it was only getting more difficult. In our brief text this morning, verses 12 through 14, Peter brings his letter to a close. And while we might be inclined to think that the closing of a letter like this, in which Peter simply sends greetings from friends, that we wouldn't find much to sink our spiritual teeth into. But you would be wrong. In these closing words, Peter provides his original readers and us with one last volley of gospel-centered encouragements for our blessing and benefit. And he seems to do this almost reflexively, almost involuntarily, Almost like even in closing words, he has to get the gospel in there so that even as in a standard and customary closing of a letter, Peter can't help but continue to share the message of gospel hope for troubled times. So let me read for us second, or 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. Through Silvanus... Our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your word, every part of it, even the little bits that sometimes we can just blow through and think that they are, you know, standard endings to a letter. And yet, Lord, even here, Lord, your spirit has inspired these words such that they are the very word of God. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of God endures forever. Lord, let us uh, view these words as being for us today. Give us open ears and open eyes. Give us hearts ready to receive your truth. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as Peter closes out this letter, we're going to see three growth essentials for Spiritual strangers, aliens, and exiles. Three spiritual growth essentials for spiritual strangers, aliens, and exiles. 
Now, Peter began his letter addressing these believers as aliens and strangers. You go back to chapter 1 and verse 1 and you'll see that. He didn't just mean that they were living in a country different from the country they were born in, though many of them were, in fact, living in a country different from the country they were born in. By calling them aliens and strangers, he meant that they were spiritual aliens and strangers. He meant that their true citizenship was in heaven, from which they eagerly await a Savior. He meant that because of this, they were aliens and strangers in the world, and that the world was not their home and is not their home. As Peter writes this letter, he does so most likely from Rome. As he closes here in verse 13, as we read, he sends greetings from she who is in Babylon. Now that's an odd thing to say. Is it to be taken literally? What does Peter mean by it? Well, Peter is most likely referring to the church at Rome, and he does so in a cryptic way, perhaps not wanting to give away his own location to those who might be seeking to bring him harm. Peter uses the term Babylon here of those who send their greetings, which was a weighted term, weighted with Old Testament significance. The physical city of Babylon in Peter's day was in ruins, a shadow of its former glory. But in the Old Testament, we know that Babylon was the seat of world power and rule. And the Jews had been carried away in captivity to Babylon. They were exiled into Babylon. So to refer to the church in Rome as she who is in Babylon... Peter is referring to those saints living in Rome, the seat of world power and dominion. Saints who, like the exiled saints of the Old Testament, were now living as aliens and strangers in a strange land. Though most of these Christians were Romans by birth, they were those who had been born in the city of Rome Nevertheless, they were now strangers and aliens and exiles too by nature of their conversion, by nature of the fact that they've been born again to a living hope. They no longer fit in this world. And so he calls them the she of Babylon, referring to the church, the Christians there. The Christians in Rome, just like the Christians in Asia Minor, to whom Peter writes, find themselves in solidarity with one another as they are all strangers, aliens, and exiles, living in a land that is not their true home. And so it is for us. We share that same solidarity with them. So what's an exile to do? What's a stranger and an alien to do living in a strange land? Well, Peter says, thrive. Is it possible for a stranger, an alien, someone living in exile to thrive? Yes. 
We can spiritually thrive even while in exile. And Peter shares with us three growth essentials for spiritual strangers, aliens, and exiles here. So let me point you to the first growth essential. You want to grow as an exile? You want to grow despite the fact that we are strangers and aliens? Here it is. First of all, stand firm in God's grace. Stand firm in God's grace. Now as he begins to close out this letter, Peter mentions Silvanus in verse 12. Through Silvanus, our faithful brother, for so I regard him, I have written to you briefly. Silvanus is, of course, another name for Silas. Paul and Silas, it's one of the, it's like a duo, right? Laverne and Shirley, Paul and Silas. Some of you will have to look that up. <laughs> Silvanus, or Silas, is mentioned in the book of Acts several times as being a companion of the Apostle Paul through many of his missionary journeys. Like Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, was a Roman citizen, and like both Paul and Peter, he was also a prophet, though he was not an apostle. He clearly was a close associate of the apostles and a personal assistant, it would appear, to both Paul and Peter now, In this instance, Silvanus served as Peter's amanuensis. Now, that's a fancy word for a secretary. He was writing down Peter's words as Peter dictated them. Silvanus then most likely delivered the letter that Peter dictated and that he wrote down to the Christians in Asia Minor. Peter then characterizes what he has written as being a faithful testimony of the true grace of God. This is the true grace of God, Peter says. What Peter has written is a faithful declaration of God's grace to us in the gospel. And then he exhorts us to stand firm in it. Don't depart from it, from the right or to the left. But stand firm in the true grace of God, which I have written about in this letter. To stand firm in God's grace is to stand firm in the truth of the gospel. And this letter of Peter's is just dripping with gospel content. I just want to survey with you today for a few minutes in the gospel of Peter all of Peter's gospel mentions. There's a sense, and we could just say, you know, the whole book. But some, and there's truth to that, but there are some verses here that are clearer than others on the gospel, where the gospel is at the forefront. And I just want to survey that with you. So just try, you know, bear with me, follow along. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. This is where we started a long time ago, about a year. First Peter chapter 1, verse 1. Peter addresses those who reside as aliens. At the end of verse 1, he says, Those who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, 
May grace and peace be yours in fullest measure. We're two verses in, and already we've got gospel all over it. Right? If, if you would take a highlighter or underline in, in your Bible all the references to the gospel or to the blood of Jesus or to being chosen or to the blessing of being saved and the forgiveness of sins, your Bible at the letter of 1 Peter would be pretty much underlined throughout. It's everywhere. It's dripping with the gospel. Look at verse 3 as we continue. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Gospel, 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 gospel. God does the work in our salvation and He grants us the faith to receive what He has done. Look at verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you've not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but you believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Peter just can't get off of the gospel. I mean, didn't they already know this? Is he telling them something new? Come on, Peter, we learned this years ago. Let's, let's get to other things. Let's get to controversial topics. Let's get to... Peter says, no, we're going to keep going. Verse 10, he talks about the, how the Old Testament prophets were looking ahead to the coming of God's Messiah and the grace of God that would come through him. And now the grace of God that these angels long to look into. Look at verses 10. Through 12, as to this salvation, gospel, the prophets who prophesied the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating, as he predicted the sufferings, the cross of Christ, and the glories, the crown that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which now have been announced to you through the preaching of the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. The gospel is central. It is core. It's, it's the stuff that angels are fascinated by. How dare us ever yawn at it? It's our only hope. And yet God's grace and salvation to us is not yet fully complete. There's still more grace to be experienced by us, to be received by us when Jesus returns. Look at 1 Peter 1.13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope on that grace. 
Live your life out of the well of that grace. The gospel of God's grace also has an ethical implication. It should change the way we live. Look at verse 17 of chapter 1. Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on the earth, knowing that you were not redeemed. Gospel with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your fathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb unblemished and spotless with the blood of Christ. And then in verses 20 and 21, we have a clear declaration of who Jesus is and his relationship to our redemption. 1 Peter 1.20, For he, the Christ, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but he has appeared in these last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Gospel, gospel, gospel. The word of God is what brings to us the gospel of God's grace, verse one, chapter 1, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of the seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living, enduring word of God. God's word is the instrument that gives us spiritual life, that communicates the gospel truth to us. Chapter 2 and verse 2. Like newborn babies, we're to long for the pure milk of the word so that by it we may grow in respect to our salvation if we have tasted the kindness of the Lord. That is, tasted the kindness of the Lord in the gospel through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 2, verse 9, our identity, we are now a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim it, the excellencies of him who has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light, all because of the gospel. Verse 10 of chapter 2, For once you were not a people, but now, because of the gospel, you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now, because of the gospel, you have received mercy. Our identity is totally changed. We're now part of the people of God. We're now recipients of God's mercy when before we were not. God's saving mercy. Verse 21, chapter 2. For you've been called for this purpose. Called, our, our calling in Christ. All part of the gospel. Since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but he kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed." For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's all the gospel. Chapter 3. We're getting there, okay? Hang in. Chapter 3, verse 18. That singular verse summarizing the gospel so well. We spent a whole Sunday on it. For Christ also died for sins once for all. Chapter 3, verse 18. 
the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Gospel, gospel, gospel. Chapter 4, verse 13. Peter says, to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exaltation. Share in his sufferings, his cross, and you share also in his glory, his crown. All because of the gospel. 1 Peter 5.10. Now we're getting there. 1 Peter 5.10, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you to him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Every chapter of this letter contains clear statements of God's grace to us in the gospel. It's clear by his writing that Peter was himself standing firm in God's grace to us in the gospel. And now he calls us to do the same, to stand firm in God's grace to us in the gospel. What does it mean to stand firm in grace? Well, it means to be unmoved in our confidence. In our confidence in God's promise to save us through faith in his son, Jesus Christ. It's not a self-confidence in which we stand. It is a Christ-confidence in which we stand and stand firm. Paul made the same point in Romans 5. Listen to what he says there. Therefore... Having been justified by faith, declared righteous by God by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we exult in hope of the glory of God. There are two aspects to this standing in grace. One aspect is outside of us. God has caused us to stand in his grace, by his grace. Amen? It's his work. Our standing in grace is by his grace. So there's a a work of God outside of us that causes us to stand in his grace. But there's also a calling that we have, a commandment that we have to ourselves, keep standing in that grace. Fixing our hope on Jesus Christ. Centering our thoughts on the truth that is ours in the gospel. That's our task in this standing in grace. It's not that we keep our salvation that way, but it's that we Meditate on our salvation in that way. It's that we draw on the resources of our salvation in that way. So we stand firm in God's grace to us in the gospel. Our confidence is not in ourselves. It's not in our performance in which we stand firm. It's not even in our growth as Christians 
that we stand firm. Our confidence, our standing firm is in the finished work of Jesus Christ that has been credited to us because of God's grace. And in that, we stand firm and we are to stand firm. Stand firm, Peter says, in the true grace of God of which I have written. Now, there are other implications to standing firm in the grace of God. I think it means that we stand firm in gospel thinking, in gospel identity, in gospel mission, and in gospel hope. Let me just unpack those a little bit. We need to stand firm in gospel thinking. We can easily fill our minds with lesser thoughts. We can easily, because of our sin, because our sins are so great, we can easily... Not stand firm in God's grace. We can easily become discouraged when we look at our own life and circumstances and not realize the great blessings that are ours because of Jesus. Nothing will ground us in God's grace and grow us spiritually like filling our minds with the truth of the gospel every day. Every day. The gospel is not just for beginners. The gospel is not, you know, Christianity 101. It is. But it's also graduate level Christianity, right? And we never get beyond the need of the gospel. And to bathe ourselves in it. The gospel is as much for the seasoned believer as it is for the new believer. So we need to stand firm in gospel thinking. We need to stand firm in gospel identity. The gospel changes everything about us. We become new creations in Jesus Christ. You're not the same person you were before Christ. Hallelujah. We've become spiritually united with Christ and with other believers in Christ. We've become aliens and strangers in this world. Our relationship to everything has changed. We've become the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've become the ambassadors of God and of Christ through whom God is making his appeal to unbelievers be reconciled to God. We need to stand firm in our gospel identity. We need to stand firm in gospel mission. We have the good news. This world is so lost It's so sad. It's so dark. And it seems to darken with each day. So hopeless. So confused. Seeking but never finding the truth. But Jesus has come. And he offers rest to the weary and hope to the hopeless. He offers forgiveness and eternal life to all who will believe on him. Stand firm in gospel mission. And then stand firm in gospel hope. This world is not our home. Beloved, the best is yet to come. 
For now we toil and we cry and we struggle and we suffer, but the day is coming when all will be made right. The day when our hope is fulfilled. And our hope is not in politics. It's not in money. It's not in education. It's not in government. Our hope is in the Lord and in His promise to return and to make all things new. So stand firm in gospel hope. And all that that means. This is the true grace of God, Peter says. Stand firm in it. Call yourself back to it in times of discouragement or disillusionment. Peter modeled this for us in this very book. Saturating us with the gospel from beginning to end. Stand firm in God's grace. Secondly, draw near in Christian fellowship. Draw near in Christian fellowship. Peter here sends greetings from the church in Rome, which, as I have said, he shrewdly refers to as she who is in Babylon. These Roman Christians have been chosen together with you. They share a common election in Christ. Peter began his letter that way, right? 1 Peter 1.1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen. These Christians all share a common origin, a common identity, a common calling, a common election. They are chosen in Christ. And that places us in fellowship with one another. As a Christian, you share more in common with any other Christian than you do with your closest unbelieving family or friend. Now, it may not feel like that, but that's the reality. That is your spiritual identity and the spiritual relationship that has been created Because we are all in Christ together. Go anywhere you wish around the world and find a Christian and you will immediately find a relational bond that is deeper than any cultural or language barrier. Some of you have been able to experience that. That's Christian fellowship. Next, Peter mentions Mark, that he also sends greetings. He's with Peter, Mark. Mark here is John Mark. John Mark. Mark for short. He's the companion of Paul and Barnabas in the book of Acts. You may remember that. John Mark rather infamously abandoned Paul in the middle of his missionary journey leaving Paul to conclude that he was immature and untrustworthy. And this resulted in a break in the partnership between Paul and Barnabas. Barnabas gave John Mark a second chance, probably a third one. 
Paul was done with John Mark at that point. But later in Paul's life, he saw a maturity in, in John Mark. And even near the end of his life, requested John Mark's presence, saying that Mark was useful to him in the ministry. It's a beautiful story of reconciliation. Tradition tells us that Peter was the major source of information for Mark's gospel. Yes, John Mark wrote Mark's, the gospel of Mark, we refer to as. In fact, tradition is so strong on that that Mark's gospel is sometimes referred to as the gospel of Peter through Mark. Peter then in verse 14 says that they are to greet one another with a kiss of love. So we're going to line up today. Some of you are slipping out the back door right now or thinking about it. At this point, all the introverts and the germaphobes and the hermits are squirming in their pews. I see you. Greet one another with a kiss of love? Yeah. That's what it says. In the culture of Peter's day, this was how you showed love and care for one another. It was a culturally appropriate, physical, outward expression of the love and care they had for one another. And they were to do it regularly. Now, our culturally appropriate expressions of love and concern for one another are a bit different than a kiss. In fact, a kiss would be odd for most of us, maybe even creepy. That's a cultural difference. These were holy kisses, but that doesn't mean it wasn't on the mouth. That's a different culture than the one we live in, right? We're, we are not comfortable with that, except from those within our immediate family and maybe just our wife or our husband. So that would not be an, an appropriate cultural expression in our setting. And so now we can all relax just a little bit. Breathe a sigh of relief. But that doesn't cancel out the need for creating a warm and welcoming community of believers. Our greetings to one another are to be warm and genuine and evident of the love we have in our hearts for one another. And some of us need to work on that a bit. We're about as warm as an ice cube. Maybe that doesn't come easy for you. Say, well, what, what if I don't like people that much? <laughs> yeah? Then go back to the gospel. Stand firm in the grace of God. Go back to grace. Go back to the, your gospel identity and your gospel community that you've been blessed with and act accordingly. Handshakes, hugs, warm smiles, genuine interest in the other person. 
These are all culturally appropriate expressions of the love we have for one another. Fist bumps of love. Great. The fact is, as aliens and strangers in the world, we need each other. Wherever you have exiles, you find them dwelling together in close bonds of association. Why? Because they're all they have in this world. We need to invest and be intentional about our fellowship and our community because we need each other to grow as we ought, to spiritually thrive as exiles and aliens and strangers. You can't do that by making a beeline from your car to your seat, folding your arms, refusing to make eye contact with anyone for fear that they might greet you and invade your personal space. We need to draw near in Christian fellowship because we need each other. We were not created to have this just me and Jesus relationship. That is not biblical Christianity. When we were placed in Christ, we were spiritually united with him. And because we're united with Christ and every other Christian is united in Christ, we're therefore united with one another. That's why the New Testament make, places such emphasis on Christian community and the bonds of love that we share. You can't thrive as a Christian on your own. You can't do it remotely. You can't do it through the video screen. takes each of us being in one another's presence intentionally in a prolonged way over weeks and months and years walking through life together pointing each other to Christ encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near thirdly finally rest in Christ's peace Finally here, Peter closes out his letter beautifully. Peace be to you all who are in Christ. These are not just throwaway words, words of routine that just go before a signature like regards or best regards. Or sincerely, yes, someone said sincerely. Those are fine. But that's not what Peter's doing here. Peter shares this word as a kind of concluding prayer and benediction over his readers. Peace be to you. The Christian understanding of peace is deeply rooted in the Hebrew understanding of peace. Shalom. A deep sense of personal well-being that comes from being rightly related to God. 
It is the peace or shalom of Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. That's shalom. That's peace. God is my shepherd. He's going to take care of me. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Shalom is so significant. It's so deep. It's such an abiding truth that even when bad things happen, shalom is still present. Shalom is not threatened. Psalm 23, 4, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. That is shalom. That is peace. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You've anointed my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and loving kindness will follow me all the days of my life and I'm going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That is peace. That is shalom. That is ours in Christ. Nothing can shake that. Nothing can take that away. It's the possession of all those who are in Jesus. Christ has brought us shalom. That deep and abiding sense of well-being from being rightly related to God, come what may. That nothing can separate us from the love of God which is for us in Christ Jesus. Rest in God's peace. God's peace that has come to us through faith in His Son, Jesus Christ. Rest in that peace and you will flourish. Be shaken from that peace. Be distracted from that peace. And you will wither. You will struggle. So rest in Christ's peace. Stand firm in God's grace. Draw near in Christian fellowship. Rest in Christ's peace. All of it flowing from the gospel of Jesus Christ and the letter of 1 Peter. Let's pray. Lord, we're so grateful for this letter Peter wrote to suffering Christians, struggling. And he gave them gospel hope for troubled times. And you've used him and the words inspired by the Holy Spirit again today to do the same for us. Give us gospel hope for troubled times. We don't know what the future holds, but it doesn't look good from the headlines. It doesn't look good for Christians from a human standpoint. Lord, we know you're in control. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we will fear no evil because you are with us. So we rest in that peace. We rest in that peace together as a Christian community. And we do so simply because of your grace. Grace shown to us in the gospel. Help us to stand firm in it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.